0: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to
1: your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's
0: Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. And with Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, worrying news from the Amazon rainforest, why our biggest carbon ally could soon become a massive carbon criminal, and that's owing to accelerated greenhouse effects. That's what could happen. Also, are you a fire risk, or at least are you predisposed to becoming a smoker? Scientists have pinpointed a clutch of genes that could make people prone to lighting up. And also how scientists have discovered that Jupiter could be in the habit of eating its moons. What a a case of indigestion.
2: And speaking of indigestion, uh, anyway, we'll also be coming up. We'll be hearing about the asteroid that brushed past the Earth earlier this week inside the moon's orbit. Crikey. Uh, We'll also be meeting the man who routinely does this.
3: You have to repress the gag reflex at first. Then you have to flip back your epiglottis in your throat. Repress the peristalsis reflex, which is 22 pairs of muscles that swallows your food all the way down to your stomach. Nudge your heart to the left. Then relax your lower esophageal sphincter just before it goes into the stomach. Then repress the retch reflex in the stomach. So there's a lot to it.
2: No, he wasn't eating a bit of my mother's famous liver à Mm. l'orange. That's Dan Meyer, who's a professional sword swallower. He recently won an Ig Nobel Prize for his study on the kinds of injuries that occasionally happen to people who swallow
4: swords. That is worryingly cutting-edge research, Kat. And in this week's kitchen science, you'll have heard of antimatter. Well, I'm going to show you how to make an anti bubble. If you, if you want to have a go, all you need is a bowl of soapy water, ideally a clear bowl, and a washing up bottle full of salty water. And I'll show you how to do it later. Thank you, Dave. I look forward to being
0: inflated in terms of my knowledge, that is, in a while. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the programme, the email address is chris at the naked
1: The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
0: A paper in the journal Science this week is very worrying for several reasons because it says that the Amazon rainforest, which let me tell you, is absolutely huge. Six million square kilometres of surface of the land in South America that it covers could actually become our worst enemy if there is a massive acceleration of the greenhouse effect. This is the work of Oliver Phillips. He's an ecologist at Leeds University and he, together with 68 international collaborators, have been monitoring the Amazon for a long time and the way they've been doing this is by setting up 136 study plots. These are small areas of the Amazon which they routinely visit and they measure the growth of trees, plants shrubs and what's living and what's dying the idea being to calculate how much biomass how much living material is in each of these plots this means you can calculate how much carbon it must be locking away or releasing and this gives you an idea as to how much carbon dioxide the whole of the amazon is able to take away or put back into the atmosphere year on year and to put it into perspective the amazon actually locks away something like at the moment 100 billion tons of carbon And what their research showed that in all of the years leading up to 2005, every single hectare of the Amazon rainforest was taking out of the atmosphere at least a ton of carbon every single year. But then in 2005, something dramatic happened. If you cast your mind back, you'll probably remember that it was the same year that Hurricane Katrina occurred. And Hurricane Katrina uh, was driven or spawned by a pool of very warm water in the North Atlantic. That's what kindles hurricanes. And what the knock-on effect of that was was to trigger a drought in the Amazon. And because areas of the Amazon were deprived of rainfall, lots of trees began to die. And the death of those trees and the stalling of the growth in the Amazon meant that instead of locking away carbon, it began to release carbon. And in the worst-case scenarios, about two tonnes of carbon... Began to be released per hectare of the Amazon rainforest. Now, what um, Oliver Phillips says is that at the moment, the Amazon is one of our best allies. It's accounting for a huge drawdown of carbon dioxide every single year. It's soaking up a lot of the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere. But If climate change goes ahead, we're going to see higher temperatures of the ocean waters. We may therefore see see more droughts over the Amazon in future, and this means this event could play out more often. And this means that if you do see more droughts in the Amazon, you will see more releases of carbon and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which could trigger a much faster greenhouse effect or an acceleration of the greenhouse effect. So, as he puts it, we need to move this up the political agenda
2: worrying stuff and now from uh, a smoking gun to a smoking gene. Uh, Tobacco causes around a quarter of all cancer deaths in the UK as well as other nasty diseases like heart disease, lung disease and so on and it's also a fiercely addictive drug. This means that people find it very hard to give up once they've started but why do some people manage to quit the cigarettes relatively easily others fight a lifelong battle and what makes some people start in the first place um, and become addicted after just a few cigarettes Well, some people just never really uh, take up the habit at all. Now, some studies have been done using twins. These are nature's genetic experiments um, and shown that maybe smoking behaviour may be hereditary. So maybe it is controlled by some genes. And now researchers from the US writing in the journal PLOS One have used the latest DNA analysis techniques to hunt for genes that are linked to smoking behaviour. Now, they looked at DNA taken from over 2,300 men and more than 2,200 women. These were a mixture of smokers and non smokers. And they looked at specific markers of their smoking behaviour. So, the number of cigarettes they smoked per day, the age they started smoking, how long they'd smoked for, uh, and that kind of thing. And they looked at whether they'd ever smoked or whether they'd managed to give up as well. And they used so called SNP analysis. This is analysis across the whole genome it's sometimes called genome scanning analysis where you try and narrow down specific regions of the genome of the human dna that are linked to specific traits or diseases that kind of thing And now they uh, found in around the total of the people involved in the study, around 2,600 of them have ever smoked. And although in this study they didn't actually find any new genes that were linked to smoking, they did find some more evidence to support the existence of an important gene in smoking behaviour that's on human chromosome 15. They did find also some evidence for other genes. Uh, For example, as you might expect, the genes that encode nicotine receptors, did uh, kind of pop up in this study. And another very interesting gene called monoaminoxinase, which is on the X chromosome, Uh, and this uh, variations in this gene affected whether people were more or less likely to smoke around 10 cigarettes a day or more. Now, this gene's particularly intriguing because it's also been linked in the past to alcoholism and to Parkinson's disease. So it does deserve a lot more investigation. Another interesting result was that the gene for alcohol, some of the alcohol dehydrogenase is also popped up in the study. Um, so although a lot of these links are quite weak at the moment, it's certainly provided a lot more leads uh, for further research. And the true picture is probably going to be very complex because with smoking, it's obviously social factors as, as well as genetic and... Um, sort of the neurological factors in the brain
0: so do the researchers suggest that this could be by knowing about these genes a a sort of lead in terms of making better countermeasures ways to get people off smoking
2: well there are there are obviously pharmacological approaches if you can find out what sort of receptors that people may or may not have variations in them you might be able to design drugs but also maybe you can try and target better more effective measures to people or, or suggest like just don't smoke in the first place would probably be the best thing
4: uh, from smoking to possibly gluttony but on a planetary scale. Now scientists have spent a long time trying to simulate the birth of the solar system, partly to uh, try and understand our own system and partly to try and estimate how many other similar so- systems are out in the galaxy. One thing that's confused them is Jupiter's moons, there just aren't enough of them. According to all, got si- quite a lot though, isn't it? It's got a fair number and they're quite heavy they're, they're some of the biggest ones in the solar system but they only make up about 2% of the whole, the whole <laughs> of Jupiter's mass so according to all the simulations they should make up about about 10%. There should be five or six times as many of them. Now Robin Canop of the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado may have worked out where all the moons have gone. They've been eaten up by Jupiter itself. And a ballistic planet. Yes, well yeah. Jupiter and its moons were formed out of a disk of gas and lumps of rocks which slowly as friction worked between them so they were all orbiting one another and slowly as friction worked between them they collapsed into form the Jupiter itself and the moons. However, um, what he reckons is going on is that the, f- the first set of moons formed where there was still all this disk of material and the friction acted on those moons and so their orbit got lower and lower and lower. Just slowed them down. Slowed them down until they just crashed into Jupiter in one of the most big, some of the huge biggest collisions the solar system's seen for a long, long time. Um, and then he reckoned that another generation of moons formed and another one and possibly there's been five generations of moons and only the very last generation went just as that... Um, moon forming disk was just finally collapsing, there was not enough there to slow them down are the ones we can see today
0: is the same phenomenon probably happening elsewhere in the solar system? Because we know that we have other gas giants that have rings. It's not just Saturn that has rings around it. So could the same thing or the same story be playing out elsewhere?
4: Um, the, the rings of Jupiter and Saturn, I think, are, there's very little mass in them. They're very, very thin. They're only a few hundred metres thick. So it's not happening in the solar system now. Um, this was happening in the first few tens of millions of years of Jupiter being forming. So, But it would probably be happening in other solar systems just as they're being created. <laughs>
2: And uh, now, speaking of, well... Self, You you seem to have uh, imposed a personality on Jupiter, this very greedy planet. But what makes us have a sense of our own self? And what do we think about ourselves? This is one of the most intriguing areas of neuroscience at the moment. And uh, basically, how are we aware of our own thoughts and our personality? Now, previous research has shown that a few areas of the brain, areas called the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulated cortex, and the parietal regions, I have no idea where those are, they're in the brain somewhere, but they're involved in self-reflection and processing our sense of self but can we draw a distinction between regions of the brain that are specifically involved in processing thoughts about ourself from different regions that are involved in processing thoughts about people in general and new results from researchers in the Netherlands using functional MRI scanning this is MRI scanning where you could look at the activity of the brain they may have now provided a clue and shown that our sense of self may reside at least partly in a region called the anterior insula this is deep in your forebrain and it's partly of the brain linked to feelings and emotions. And so to find this out, the researchers used 16 young male volunteers, and they put them in an MRI scanner. And they were shown three different types of statements and asked to say whether they were true. So uh, they were shown statements about themselves, like, I am a good friend. Uh, They were shown statements about someone they knew, like a teammate or a classmate, like, you know, so and so talks too much. And they were also shown general knowledge statements like, a vertebra is a bone. And while asking the volunteers to think about these statements, the researchers looked at their brain activity, and they found that when the volunteers were thinking about statements and trying to apply them to themselves, there was activity in this part of the brain, the anterior insula. But this wasn't seen when they were thinking about statements uh, about general knowledge and also about statements about other people. So it really does suggest that although they found areas of activity in many other parts of the brain that we already know about, that maybe this sort of sense of self-awareness is particularly strong in this particular area of the brain.
0: That's very interesting because there was research done in the last year or so looking at people who have anorexia And scanning the same region of the brain shows that when people with anorexia are presented with a food stimulus, this area of the brain shows different activity compared with normal people. And we know this bit of the brain is active when you are relating what you're thinking about and what you're doing to how it will impact on your body. And so they're suggesting that people who have anorexia uh, are misappropriating or misinterpreting how the stimulus the food that they want to or don't want to eat is going to impact on their body and so it sort of tallies with what you're saying
2: absolutely and it's quite interesting for other psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia um, where you sort of have a disturbed sense of self as well so if we can understand more about these parts of the brain we might understand more about these kind of conditions
4: which would be very helpful dave On something somewhat different, Um, predicting earthquakes and avalanches is a notoriously difficult problem. Scientists have been attempting to do so for hundreds of years with very, very little success. Now a group from Imperial College may have worked out a way forward. Both earthquakes and avalanches are types of critical phenomena. The classic example is slowly pouring sand onto a pile. Uh, The top of the sand pile slowly gets more and more unstable until something gives and you get a landslide. The problem is that predicting how big this landslide or exactly when it's going to be is almost impossible, because it might just be a tiny little landslide, just a few centimetres, or it might be a huge one, this small landslide triggers a bigger one, which triggers a bigger one, and swoops the whole way down the pile. Now, Henrik Jensen has been looking at a simplified version of this, he's been creating a pile of ball bearings in two dimensions, adding one at a time to the top of the um, pile. Every time he added a ball, he took a photo. Occasionally, there were landslides of different sizes, and he's been trying to predict it in various ways he found it virtually impossible to predict the size of the landslide the traditional way by looking at the size of the previous landslides but he did have more look by looking at the state of the pile before each ball was added you found the more disordered the pile was before the next ball was added, the larger the landslip was going to be. And you could predict the size of the landslip with a 64% accuracy. you think so you can get a lot better by using a more sophisticated model. Um, it sounds a pretty, uh, pretty abstract finding, but it does show that if you're wanting to predict avalanches or earthquakes, you shouldn't be looking at the history um, of previous avalanches, but you should be looking at, the actual state of the snow or the actual state of the rocks underground and so it might might look to be a way forward. So if you have very freaky weather
0: which leads to a very disordered structure of the snowpack, that's a more
4: avalanche prone situation than any particular
0: sequence of weather?
4: Yeah, um, it's not so much the um, it's less about exactly the snowpack Uh, probably in, in an actual avalanche it wouldn't necessarily be the disorder it might be some properties of the snow which are different but the important thing is to be studying the actual snow on the ground every day rather than looking at when the last avalanche was if you want to predict what's going on in the future. Thank you Dave. I understand that the best model actually comes from using
0: table tennis balls which are very cheap and very light so they don't actually damage people but they provide an excellent study subject because it's very easy for digital cameras to see them. Now, uh, if you have been watching the news this week, then you might have noticed that the Earth had a brush with a near-Earth object. On the other hand, you might have been forgiven for letting it pass you by, which is luckily precisely what happened to the Earth this week. But we did have a close encounter with DD45. And to tell us what DD45 was, here's Professor Alan Fitzsimmons from Queen's University in Belfast. Hello, Alan. Hello there. So tell us a bit about this object. What is it?
5: Well, it's a small asteroid. It's about somewhere between 20 and 40 metres across. It was discovered, actually, just only just over a week ago on Friday the 27th of February, and it passed our planet by at a distance of only 72,000 kilometres uh, on Tuesday.
0: That's extremely close. I mean, that's, let's put that in perspective. Satellites orbit the Earth about 25,000 miles out, so that's only about twice as far away as, as a geostationary satellite.
5: That's right, that's right, and um, occasionally we do spot these small asteroids coming past us. Uh, in fact, we the, uh, objects of that size hit the Earth probably about once every two or three hundred years. We're not quite sure how often they hit us at the moment, but uh, they hit us on, on timescales of centuries.
0: Had this thing not been 70,000 or seventy. 70- thousand kilometres away it had actually landed on earth what sort of damage would that have done how would it compare with say the object that wiped out the dinosaurs
5: Well, it's much smaller than that. The object that wiped out the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometers across and had global consequences. Uh, Those objects only hit us about once every 100 million years. An object that can cause climate change uh, can be as small as one kilometer across, however. But even they only hit us once every uh, million years or so. Something this size may have been similar to the object that entered our atmosphere over Tunguska in Siberia in 1908. It may uh, have exploded low down in the atmosphere if it had, had entered our atmosphere, um, and perhaps about a few kilometres up. And it, But it would have wiped out several thousand square kilometres of ground.
0: So, I mean, that's city-devastating sort of level. How did we miss this kind of object? Because I thought we had... I was reassured to learn we had systems in place to spot these things so that we could take action.
5: Uh, Well, it's because the systems we have in place are designed to spot the larger asteroids, the one-kilometre guys and larger, the ones that would affect the entire planet. But they're too small to effectively uh, catalog all the much smaller objects. Now, at the moment, uh, the next generation of survey telescopes is in construction. There's something called Stars, which actually starts operating this year in Hawaii, and then uh, sometime in the next decade, towards the end of the next decade, something called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will get going in Chile. However, even those telescopes won't be able to catalogue all the objects about the same size as DD45. So we're just going to have to keep uh, watching and and surveying the sky.
0: Where did DD45 come from? And given that it was so close this time round, is it, or is there any chance it might go round again and have another go?
5: Well, the, the asteroid's in orbit about the sun, just as everything else is in our solar system. It has an orbital period of a, just over one and a half years. Uh, and its orbit just happens to have a point in it where it is very close to the Earth's orbit. So roughly once every March, if the asteroid's there and the Earth is there, it can come close to us. Now, at the moment, it can't hit us. The next time it will be close to us, will be actually be on the 3rd of March in the year 2067, and even then it will pass by twice as far as it did this week. But over the coming centuries and thousands of years, its orbit will change slightly due to the gravitational tugs uh, of the Earth and the other planets, and it may well end up hitting us in a few thousand years' time. We don't know at the moment. We haven't got enough data on its orbit.
0: So unless you're Bruce Forsyth or someone who's going to live forever like that, then you're probably in no danger. Thank you very much. That was Alan Fitzsimmons from Queen's University in Belfast too. Tell us about our brush this week with DD45, a near-Earth object.
1: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
0: Don't forget that you can also catch up with all of the previous editions of The Naked Scientist, this programme, including reading up the references and further details about everything you hear on the show on our website, nakedscientist.com. Plus, if you want to tune in live on an entirely, or in an entirely different way, there's also Second Life. We beam this programme live into the Cylans part of Second Life every week, 10am Second Life time, 6pm UK time, and you can join in with all the other avatars from around the world who are settling on a sun lounger and listening to the show
2: and now we have dave in the studio today it is time for our kitchen science what have we got we've got a lot of kit here today dave I've
4: got a fair amount of odds and ends um what i want you to do this week is if you get a large clear bowl well, i've actually got a small fish it's, tank
2: look, yeah um, it looks like a little goldfish tank goldfish there.
4: tank. yeah i've just filled that up with basically washing up water maybe a little bit stronger a little bit more washing up liquid than you put in the normal washing up liquid so
2: water. cold water big squeeze of washing up liquid yeah. yep
4: um, and then I I want you to get some water um, Put it in an old washing up liquid bottle a
2: drip, Just a bottle that will drip Yeah basically yeah.
4: a bottle we can drip water out of Squirt it out okay. very slowly in a controlled way I'm probably actually going to use a wash bottle Because I've got a little bit more control like that for, on live radio And then clear the bubbles off the top of the washing up liquid. Okay. And then just dribble um, the slightly. Once you put three or four teaspoons of salt in the in the water in the bottle. Okay. And then let that dissolve nicely, and then just dribble that water into the washing up liquid from between five and ten centimeters. Move it up and down, and see if you see any odd bubbles.
2: So we got water, soapy water in the fish tank, a bottle with some salty water in it, and just drip the salty water on top of the washing up liquidy yeah, water. You
4: may have to change the speed of your bubbles Maybe you wobble the t- further dribbling it, the thing you're dribbling it around a bit but you should see some interesting bubbles if you have a go.
2: Interesting bubbles. Well we shall find out if you're doing this at home if you have a fish tank um, please take your fish out of it first before <laughs> doing this. Uh, if you think you know what's going to happen then get in touch. Email us on chris at scientist.com
0: Kat, did your mum really make liver à l'orange?
2: She really did make liver à l'orange. It was when I was quite young but it stuck in my head <laughs> for about 25 years supposed
0: to get it in your stomach not your head
2: <laughs> It was bad She's normally quite a good cook but yeah that one was bad
0: got a question here for you Kat from John Chapman who says can you catch foot odour I think he's directing this at you because <laughs> the one thing we get emailed about more than ever before is the digs I used to give you about your, fo- your feet I don't and I stopped doing it because feet. people told me off
2: Yeah exactly you're horrible to me Even my mum says you're horrible to me can you catch foot odour um, well foot odour is, is primarily due to the bacteria that just kind of live around your feet so if you've got very sweaty feet if you don't keep them clean you can have a massive buildup of bacteria so I suppose technically if you rubbed your feet against someone else's feet you would transfer the bacteria but then they would need to have the right conditions like sweaty dirty feet um, one thing though that can make your feet smell a bit is having athlete's foot and that is a fungal infection and you can catch that um, you can pick it up in like changing rooms you can pick it up by again rubbing your feet against someone who's got it so that might make your feet a bit niffy and you certainly can catch that that.
4: Would different bacteria smell different, so maybe you could catch a particularly smelly set of bacteria off somebody else
2: well, different different d- bacteria do have obviously very different smells, but there 's all kinds of bacteria in the world that, that have different properties and it 's all about sort of the gases they produce that make you smell but um, yeah, they may react differently on your skin if you have slightly different levels of, of things in your sweat <laughs> i don 't want to talk about this any longer a few
0: foot related facts: your feet actually <laughs> squirt about a liter and a half of sweat into your socks on every 24 hours and you're shedding something like 40,000 skin cells every minute or so over a lifetime that adds up to one and a half stone in dead skin so if you take the surface area of the body that your feet are a proportion that's a lot of dead skin just off your feet and of course if your feet are stewing in a nice sweaty pair of trainers which don't allow them to breathe what you've got then is bacteria, warmth, wet and food and that's what causes that bacterial banquet that makes the, the smelliness
2: so wash your feet, change your socks
0: Thank you, Kat. Stephen uh, Whittam got in touch and he said, uh, Not that I have any intention of doing this, probably because Gordon Brown has made it uh, totally impossible for you too because it would be so expensive. But he says, um, If I bathed in vodka, would it get me drunk? What an intriguing idea! <laughs>
6: Oh, that's
2: my idea of fun. Um, I, I don't know, because I don't know if when well, you if have you a bath... if you drank
0: the bathwater. water, my children do.
2: Yeah, uh... <laughs> if you drank it, it might, but I don't think we absorb stuff through our skin. I think the skin's barring to the, the, the bloodstream. Pre- the
0: skin is pretty good, but you do absorb alcohol at the sites of mucous membranes. And so that's why, for instance, the French people love putting suppositories in their bottoms, for example, and there are some tablets you can put under your tongue, because where you have a mucous membrane... The blood vessels are very close to the surface, and the skin is very thin, so you can get things that dissolve well in fats ah. to go through.
2: So, would a lady as well, through her lady parts,
0: could yeah, get drunk well, men, by men sitting as well. in a bath So, of vodka. I think you probably could absorb small amounts that way. Also, your eyes—you could get some of the vapor going into your eyes, up your nose, because it would volatilize. Because presumably, you'd make it warm. warm if vodka, you're sitting in yeah. a bath, you'd probably want oh, it warm, of course. So, and therefore, you would umbrella. end up with some of it.
4: Well, yes, or maybe some <laughs> fruit to go with—maybe some
2: know cherries.
4: I guess it would also make. You you'd dry you out very quickly because yeah. um, osmosis would suck all the water out from inside of you so you want yeah, to drink exactly. a lot of water? Be somewhat desiccated. You, you wouldn't want to drink the vodka probably afterwards, <laughs> after it was
0: sort of odour human in there. Um, got a question uh, actually from Catherine Ryan. Now she was actually the 2008 Nivea Funny Woman uh, of the Year and she met up with Mira recently and in fact we featured her on last week's programme because she was talking about the fact that she was the first comedian or one of them to have her genetic profile done but we picked her inter- interest and she's actually sent us a question.
6: I'm Catherine Ryan. I'm a stand-up comedian who is pregnant and getting sick on the bus every day. And I was just wondering who I can blame. Is morning sickness inherited?
0: Well, I can probably help you out there, which which is that yes, morning sickness is because by definition it's genetic. Because when you're pregnant, you've got someone else's DNA in you, and as a result, it makes you get sick, and everyone gets it pretty much once or twice in their lifetime, depending on how many times you get pregnant, and therefore you could say it is inherited. Now. What actually is it? Well, this is emesis gravidarum, which is fancy Latin expression, which means uh, puking of people who are pregnant. And why this happens is we think it's down to a hormone called beta-HCG, human chorionic gonadotrophin. This is a hormone which is produced by the early foetus, just as it's beginning to implant into the uterus. And it puts this into the bloodstream to maintain the survival of a structure called the corpus luteum, which is where the egg came from on the ovary. And that structure makes progesterone and progesterone keeps the uterus lush and well supplied with blood so it can sustain a pregnancy and until the placenta develops properly which is where pl- the progesterone comes from afterwards you need that corpus luteum to stay alive and that's why you make beta-HCG but it seems to mimic another hormone called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. So when women are pregnant, they seem to have a slightly higher metabolic rate, and it might be that part of the symptoms are down to your metabolic rate going up because you have more active thyroxine, the the body's own thermostatic hormone. And as a result of that uh, extra thyroxine level, you are made to feel as though you are feeling sick more often. Usually, though, it's not a major problem. It peaks at about two months. It comes on about two months of pregnancy. It peaks at three months, and it's gone by three four months there are some people who are very unfortunate and they have a hyperemesis and this can actually be this can necessitate hospitalization unfortunately because it can be so severe and there is some evidence that can run in families but i think that the numbers are so small there's not been any really strong and robust evidence to actually confirm that so that's the reason why you can get morning sickness quick question for dave from cat
2: yes i've got a question for you dave Uh, it's from michael perry and he says what happens when a bomb explodes underwater
4: well, if any bomb explodes, um, the first thing that you're going to get is an awful lot of high pressure, a lot of gas at very high pressure because you've taken a load of solid, turned it into a gas. It wants to expand. Um, water isn't going to move away nearly as quickly as air does, so the pressure is going to remain very, very high, pushing the water away. The fastest the water can move away really is, probably, is roughly the speed of sound in water, it's about 1,400 metres per second. So you're going to get a very, very... So you're going to form a bubble. And as that water gets pushed away incredibly fast, you're gonna get a sound a very, very powerful sound wave or pressure wave moving away from it. Um if you um because the water doesn't compress, that's gonna have a very, very high pressure. It can do a lot of damage, which is the reason why depth charges can destroy very, very strong things like submarines, even if they're ten or twenty meters away. Um and apparently it's a way that I, it's a theory of how you might be able to blow open um, safes If you fill the safe up with water It's a theory that if you <laughs> drill a hole in it And drop a small charge in um, Then because the pressure wave is so much greater It should, might blow the door
0: off So because all the pressure is being exerted on the safe Whereas if you were to just stack a load of dynamite up At the front of the safe
4: Some of it would hit the safe But a lot of that pressure wave would go out into but the room So all the gas that's produced All that extra volume you've produced Is exerted, pushed on the side of the safe Whereas normally you can just compress the, get the air inside the room
2: So it'd be more explosive if you fart in the bath as well.
4: Wouldn't
0: like to come around your house, Kat. Thank you very much for that. Uh, cold Twine says, uh, the bacteria that cause foot odour, uh, is that the same as where bad breath comes from? Absolutely. Um, the bacteria that live in our mouths metabolise what we put into our mouths and their metabolites are smelly but they can also be helpful because scientists showed in the last six months that they also give certain wines that lovely what's called retro aroma the taste of the wine coming on in your mouth after you've swallowed it scientists showed that the bacteria break down sulphur compounds that are previously flavourless but as soon as you uh, put them in your mouth the bacteria break down the compounds and turn them into nice smelly whiffy compounds and then that gives you the extra taste and extra dimension to a fine wine
1: keeping you abreast of the world's best science the Naked Scientists.
2: You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris, Cat, and Dave, and today we are talking about anything. As we've already heard, we're talking about vodka baths, farts, and smelly feet, uh, but we'll take your science questions on anything you have, so do let us know. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: Thank you, Cat. Now, if you've ever seen a sword swallowing act, then you might be forgiven for thinking it's a trick. Well, real. Sol- real sword swallowers are out there. It's a tongue twister that isn't it? Real sword swallowers really are out there and they do, they do genuinely swallow swords for fun. Uh, predictably, pushing very long, sharp pieces of metal down your throat can lead to one or two medical complaints, not uh, least a sore throat. Uh, or could that be a sword throat? We'll find out. But surprisingly, no one's actually really studied what the knock-on effects of swallowing things like swords is. And that's where Dan Meyer comes in, because not only is he the first person to look into this, but he was also rewarded with a recent Ig Nobel Prize, the prizes that make you think after you've had a laugh at them, and he came and spoke to me about this
3: art. My name is Dan Meyer. I'm the president of the Sword Swallowers Association International. I was honored to receive the Ig Nobel Prize in Medicine last year for a paper that I co-wrote called Sword Swallowing and Its Side Effects that was published in the British Medical Journal. Um, and what are those side effects? Well, one of them is death. We. <laughs> We know of 29 sword swallowers who have died of uh, sword swallowing injuries or sword swallowing related injuries. Other uh, side effects are what we call sword throats. You get that when you swallow. begin learning sword swallowing, a lot of sword throats. Different from a
0: sore throat. Well,
3: Well, no, about the same thing, (laughs) but you put a D on the end of it and it sounds better.
0: So anatomically speaking, when you swallow a sword, Mm -hmm. you are quite literally inserting something straight from your mouth straight through into your stomach. Exactly.
3: All the way down. But people think it's just a simple repress the gag reflex and that's it. That's really just the tip of the iceberg. Well the Rep- tip of the sword even. The tip of the sword. You have to repress the gag reflex at first. Then you have to flip back your epiglottis in your throat. Repress the peristalsis reflex, which is 22 pairs of muscles that swallows your food all the way down to your stomach. Nudge your heart to the left. Then relax your lower esophageal sphincter just before it goes into the stomach. Then repress the retch reflex in the stomach. So there's a lot to it. And. When did you start doing this? I started uh, learning in 1997. It took me three years of practice. It takes most people three years to seven years to learn how to do it and another five years to master it. When you say learn,
0: as in learning to switch off all those reflexes, there's something going the wrong way down my gullet, and it's hard and it's long and it's a sword. Yes. How do you learn? This isn't self-taught, presumably. It's not something you do in front of the bathroom mirror.
3: Actually, it is self-taught. Almost everybody has to learn to do it themselves. Sometimes people will get a a mentor that will teach them, but you really, even if you have a mentor, you still have to do it yourself. You have to learn the mechanism inside the body to flip the epiglottis closed and and do all that type of thing.
0: What possessed you to write this paper that got you the Ig Nobel Prize?
3: Well, a serious injury, actually. I had uh, punctured my stomach while I was swallowing five swords at one time. And as the president of the Sword Swallowers Association, I knew all the sword swallowers worldwide. But when I realized there was very little medical information in the medical journals uh, or any of the medical books, I said, we've got to research this so that the doctors have someplace they can turn for, for help. The results of our study was that, uh, nearly each of us has at least one serious injury at some point or another. You do this long enough, it's like Russian roulette. You, you will get hurt. But one of the other things we learned, curiously enough, is that for most swords while we're swallowing a single sword, you don't have that many injuries, comparatively speaking until you start doing something unusual, like swallowing multiple swords. In my case, I was swallowing five, six swords with a macaw on my shoulder. She climbed on the back of my neck, started climbing down my collar. I turned my head. while well, I had five swords down my throat and it pinched something. And I had a little scissoring in the stomach and it was uh, about cost me my life. When did you realize that that was a pretty serious injury. Was it pretty immediate? It was immediate. It was a pain in the chest, and sometimes when we get that, it's kind of some bruising and muscular bruising type thing. A lot of times, if you drink a lot of cold ice water and let it go for a few days, sometimes it'll heal itself. In this case, it was okay for about a week until a week later, and I was swallowing five swords again. And my stomach retched upwards. And that time I knew it. And I ended up going to the hospital. I had fluid around my lungs. My heart, I couldn't breathe. My heart couldn't beat very well because it was it had so much fluid around it. And it almost killed me. And have you presumably returned to the art since then? I did exactly a month to the day I had a film uh, shoot that I had to do. And uh, I did it, and I've been back in the saddle ever since. Is this your full-time
0: occupation? Is this how you earn your money?
3: It is. It's my full-time occupation. Actually, it's also my passion. I, I absolutely love sword swallowing and studying it. What did you do before you became a sword swallower? I actually worked in the music industry in Nashville, Tennessee, for about 20 years. Then I got married, moved to Alabama, and was selling cars for a few months and absolutely hated it until my manager said, you've got to do something to make the car sales very memorable. And I said, oh, I can do that. And so I offered to swallow a sword anytime somebody would buy a car from me. And it became famous in all the papers and uh, all around the United States. And it was a lot of fun and it kept me in practice too.
0: And now you do it professionally. Will you do it professionally for me today?
3: Possibly, yes. Now, what I have here... Beautiful. It's, it's a 30-inch silver sword. You can feel it's, it's a bit heavy on, on the heavy so this, side. This is
0: no trickery. This, this is a real sword.
3: Yes. You, there's no buttons. Nothing will fold up in the handle. This one will go down to about my belly button or to my belt buckle. Yeah. Uh, but it is it's solid steel. And uh, what I'm going to do is flip back my epiglottis, slide it down my esophagus all the way down to my stomach here. For okay, you. So okay, I'll well, here let we- you narrate this as it, as it goes down. Okay, so
0: th- what what he's now doing is licking the blade with his... It's actually got the sword in his mouth, running it sideways across his tongue to, uh, the, to lubricate, presumably.
3: To lubricate it, also to feel for nicks and burrs, and also to warm up the blade. It's a little chilly from being outside.
0: Okay. He's going to do it. Oh, my God. It is right the way down through his back of his throat and down into his stomach. And there's there no go. blood on it either, which is a good thing because we no. don't actually – I might be a doctor, but I didn't have a first aid kit, which is uh... – Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so when you do your talk for the Ig Nobel tour, which is taking place at the moment, what would you be saying to to people? Obviously, don't try this at home. But, right. Um, but what's the point you're trying to make?
3: Well, one of the things that, that I do is try to prove to people that sword swelling is real because a lot of people don't believe it's real. They think it's died out. It's a 4,000-year-old art. It started in India about 2,000 B.C. But we also go through and describe our paper, the findings of our paper. And the Ig Nobel's are set up to make people think and to make people smile or make people smile, make people laugh and to make them think. And so we do a little of both. You know, you, you think, what? Paper on sword swallowing injuries. Of course, people get injured. But then when you see it and understand it, people go, oh, my gosh, that is real. That's fascinating. And it's a lot of fun.
0: So there is absolutely no trickery there. I watched him do it. Interestingly, Loretta McGuinness has called in in response to that and says, uh, as well as suppressing all those muscles and things, you also have to suppress a part of the brain, specifically the bit that says, don't do that. But that was Dan Meyer, who got the Ig Nobel Prize uh, at Harvard recently for his study on the injuries that people can succumb to if they do that thing which is to swallow swords.
2: Nutter, nutter. We are the Naked Scientist, bringing you all the cutting-edge research you could possibly need.
0: Yeah, that is indeed <laughs> a hard act to swallow.
2: Absolutely. Now, uh, we we'll just remind you about the kitchen science that Dave's got going. So what we got here, Dave, that we're so trying to get people to do? Basically get
4: a transparent bowl of um, slightly soapy water. Um, and then dribble slightly salty water into it and look for the bubbles.
2: See what happens. OK, so anyone out there doing it, um, let us know. Our email address is chris at
0: com. Thank you, Kat. Now it's time to join Mira, who's been our spotting plants at primary school this week, to learn a bit more about Charles Darwin.
7: 2009 is Darwin year, as it's 200 years since the birth of Charles Darwin. So this week I'm at St Jude's Primary School in Herne Hill, London for the launch of the Wellcome Trust's Darwin Initiatives. Now these include resources such as The Tree of Life, a short film exploring evolution on Earth. But today sees the launch of the Great Plant Hunt, where a treasure chest filled with activities has just been delivered by Sir David Attenborough to the kids here at St Jude's to help them explore nature and science the way Darwin did. So with me now is Angela McFarlane, Director of Content and Learning at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, who helped create these amazing treasure chests. Angela, tell me more about The Great Plant Hunt. Well, The Great Plant Hunt is a project to get every single primary
8: school child in the country involved in some real outdoor hands-on science following the steps of Darwin. So what kind of things are inside the chest? Well, there's a Millennium Seed Bank Mini Seed Bank which is what our scientists use to preserve seed and to keep the seed viable over a series of years. They've got a plant press, they've got magnifiers, they've got seeds, a storybook, and then on the website they've got a space where they can share photographs of the work they've done with every other school in the country. How are the things contained in this kit going to help them understand more about Darwin's principles? All of the activities start off with a thinking walk, because, of course, the methods that Darwin used were actually pretty straightforward. He went out and made observations, he made good records, he made collections. But the key thing is he did a lot of very high-quality thinking. And what we want to do is to get the children thinking about what they're seeing if they live in an inner city area and they can't get out into the countryside they can actually do a thinking walk just in the playground looking at the things that are growing on the walls coming up through the concrete but they start off by looking at what's growing around them making collections doing experiments and their thinking then develops from that point onwards
7: and why do you think it's important for children to know more and understand more about darwin's theories and his science Well the thing about Darwin's science is it's actually very accessible
8: so it's a really good introduction to science generally collecting evidence doing experiments we need them to understand the importance of science and scientists to the everyday world around them so for example the fact that we don't know
7: all there is to know about the natural world is a really important message. Angela McFarlane from the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Well, it looks like we're about to set off on one of these thinking walks now with the kids to explore the school's nature garden.
0: Things
9: out. And also another one. Okay. OK, so we've been wandering
7: around the nature garden looking out for plants, and in particular weeds, to get them thinking about how they manage to grow in unusual places. Now with me are some members of the Year 2 class here at St Jude's. So what have you all discovered about weeds today?
1: They grow in different places, like in the walls and the trees and soil and
6: even stones. I'm wondering how do they come through if there's loads of stones all over the place. The seed out of one of the flowers must have been in the stone and then it grow. It made um, a weed grow through the stone.
7: And what about Charles Darwin? Do you know much about him yet?
6: He went on the HMS Beagle and discovered all sorts of things. Well, I know that he was born February the 12th. He died when he was 200. He was idle at school. He wrote lots and lots of pages about worms and he played with dogs. And he was born 200 years ago.
7: He was indeed born 200 years ago rather than living for 200 years, thanks to the year twos at St Jude's Primary School. Now, the great plant hunt was kicked off here today by Sir David Attenborough, who's been walking around with the kids exploring the garden himself. I caught up with him earlier to talk about why Darwin and his theories have been so important to science today.
9: Well, it is the unifying theory uh, of the life sciences, uh, and it continually throws up new problems and produces and suggests new answers. So, precise, detailed mechanism whereby variation arrives and why different uh, varieties and different variations become selected, there's a lot of work to be done on that. It also threw up a number of problems. Uh, if it was true, uh, there were a number of, of, of difficulties, which scientists of the time very properly uh, said, well, we don't understand that. How could that be if, if Darwin was right? In the 150 years since the publication of The Origin of Species, every one of those major problems has been answered by scientists sometimes working in a quite different field. And suddenly you discover that they have found something which has validated Darwin's theory.
7: So one project you've been working on has been the Tree of Life project. So what exactly is this and how does it represent Darwin's thoughts?
9: Well, when Darwin, uh, in one of his early notebooks, was speculating about how life might have developed... He drew a diagram which looks like a tree. It has a trunk, and then it branches into different branches, and the branches then branch into smaller branches and so on. And that was what he thought it the way that life could have developed. And everything that we've known since then has proved that that is indeed the way that the tree of life has developed. In recent years, of course, we've discovered DNA. Darwin didn't know anything about DNA. But DNA enables you to establish the relationships of an organism just as in our law courts DNA is used DNA fingerprinting to establish for example the paternity of a child well now that kind of DNA fingerprinting can also establish the relationship between say a lion and a tiger or a chimpanzee and a gorilla and a man and an enormous amount of work has been done by DNA scientists now, so that we can now draw the diagram, which is the Tree of Life, with complete confidence.
2: That was Sir David Attenborough talking to Mira. And she also spoke to Angela McFarlane from the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. And there's more information for primary school children, secondary school children about things Darwin that they can do at welcome.ac.uk/slash Darwin200.
0: Thank you, Katna. Very quickly, we have a an email question. So this is Guillermo Davis who sent this in to us uh, as a sound file. If you want to send us a question, you can do that. You just have to send us it as an MP3 or a WAV. Hi, this is Guillermo Davis from Lima, Peru. My question is, is evolution, natural selection, still working in human race in present days? Could you provide examples of positive beneficial mutations in humans? Thank you. I reckon the answer is probably yes. I mean, what what do we think? Yeah,
2: evolution, natural selection is basically the response of organisms to changes in their environment. Our environment is changing. We are adapting. So, I mean, for example, certainly we've grown in size a lot um, due to better nutrition and things like that over the past 100,000 years. Uh
0: Yes, and I think i will probably add to that and say there are good examples of things like sickle cell anemia where people have evolved this trait which makes your haemoglobin a funny shape which means that it's not so good if you have two copies of that gene but if you have one copy you can't catch malaria. So that's a good example of a mutation that benefits you. In Europe, lactose intolerance is absent but it's present in other populations in the world we have evolved a gene in europe which enables us to digest lactose the major sugar in milk because people began to farm cows so there's another mutation that makes us healthier
2: yeah, I reckon things like you know they say the sort of the genes for very fair hair and redheaded uh, are, are dying out because of inbreeding. So that's you know we are evolving. And, in and that also way a as well. resistance to
0: HIV. There's CCR five delta thirty two. This is a gene and an, an alternative form of a gene in the immune system, which happens to give you if you're a carrier of that resistance to HIV infection. And this has only really surfaced in importance since HIV came along. So there's an example of us gaining a new mutation.
4: Although I guess in Western countries where pretty much everybody survives, the only real um, survival of the fittest is to do with how many, pe- how many children you have. So the direction in which a Western population is evolving is towards the people who have the most children.
2: It's the breeders. Anyway, um, now it's time to invite Diana Carroll, our very own hot stuff, back into the studio <laughs> for a very hot
6: question of the week. Hi, Diana. Hello, everybody. Well, this week we've got a ring of fire.
9: Hi, I'm Adrian, 28, from Romania, and I do have a question. What happens when you get burned at a molecular level when you touch something hot?
6: So, why can't skin be as good as asbestos? I'm Peter Javolski,
10: I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. I'm the director of the uh, burn centre at the St Andrews Centre for Plastic Surgery and Burns. What happens when somebody gets burnt and, and tissue is burnt is that heat causes direct damage to cells. It denatures proteins within and without cells. And it's that injury and the breakup of cells and the contents within the cells, particularly some of the enzymes within the cells that will initially cause pain. But secondarily, bits of cells that break down cause local irritation. The cell wall breaks down and that leads to a number of breakdown products which are involved in inflammation and the inflammatory response. Now, most people have burnt themselves and therefore would be well aware of the local effects that the burn and the body's reaction to the burn will cause, and that is usually swelling, redness, and tenderness, and those are all characteristic signs of inflammation. At a cellular molecular level, these events are mediated by these inflammatory mediators which have effects on particularly the tiny little blood vessels that go up to and into the skin to make them leaky. This allows fluid that is usually within the blood vessel to leak out and this gives rise to swelling.
6: So, heat denatures active parts of your cells, and this leads to the inflammatory response, which is typically the most visible bit of a burn. We had a fantastic answer on our forum, and that was from Supercryptid, who took it right back to energy transfer. He said that heat causes the molecules that make up proteins and enzymes in your cells to vibrate faster, and this can break up the proteins or bend them out of shape. He also said that heat can cause the skin cells to burst because the water inside them expands. Ouch. Well, next week we'll be discussing a protective layer for skin.
10: Hello, uh, my name is John. I live in Hong Kong. And my question is about molting. Do humans molt like other hairy animals, such as cats and dogs? In other words, does our hair get thicker in winter while we molt in the summer? And if we don't molt... Did we once have this function, and have we since lost it through evolution?
6: And as my shower plug will attest, I think I'm constantly shedding, but is this seasonal, you can write your answer and any new questions you have on our super interactive forum. Just sign in and write what you think at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can email us with chris at
0: Thank you very much, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll, who does Question of the Week for us every week. You can also pick up past editions of Question of the Week from iTunes.
1: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
0: This is The Naked Scientists with Chris, Kat and Dave. We're taking your science questions. The email address, chris at thenakedscientists.com. Soren's on the phone. Hi, Soren. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. What can we do for you? Well,
10: last week on The Naked Scientists, you said that we have been walking the way we do today for the last one to one and a half million years. Why do we see so relatively many with arthritis in their hips and their knees? It's not rare that you meet people uh, who've had major surgery in their knees or their hips today. Hasn't evolution caught up with us yet after one to one and a half million years, or is it due to changes in our lifestyle? Was it different 50 to 60 years ago when, when when our average lifespan was relatively the same as it is today? I'm a, I'm a research physiotherapist myself, and of course, I do see these patients a lot in my clinic. But I tend to believe that there is an increase in the number of cases, is that correct?
0: Hi, Sorin. It's a good question. You know, why haven't we evolved out of getting diseases like arthritis? Why hasn't that gone away? Why hasn't evolution given us better cartilage? And the answer is that uh, Dave kind of hinted at this earlier, which is it's all down to having children. And if something stops you having children, then the genes that cause that something will be removed from the population and genes that help you to have children or stay healthy long enough to have children will be enriched in the population. Now, since arthritis is really a disease of older age, it doesn't tend to come on until you're in your 60s. I think 100% of people age 60 have some degree of arthritis, but it's not till you're a bit older than that even, that you tend to have, unless you have occupational problems or joint damage already, that you need major surgery. But the reality is that because arthritis doesn't stop you having children, the genes that might make you have an increased risk of it don't get removed from the population. And as a result, we all have the same risk of arthritis. It's a bit like going bald. Because most people don't go bald until they've had, well, well after they've had children, as a result, we haven't removed that gene from the population. So there's lots of men who've got male pattern baldness. I reckon, I reckon most of us are at risk of that. But it's a great question. Thank you, Soren.
2: Anyway, it's time to go to our kitchen science I'm absolutely intrigued to see what's happening So what we have here uh, with Dave We have a small goldfish tank Full of soapy water And what have you got in that little bottle there?
4: I've got a little bottle with some salty water Just salt. put a couple of teaspoons sort of uh, Maybe three or four teaspoons full of water And maybe a hundred of salt in about maybe 100 milliliters a hundred millilitres of water dead fish in there Dave
2: There's No there isn't <laughs> Okay, so what we're going to do is Squirt this water gently So I'm just going to
4: gently dribble this water Onto the surface takes a bit of getting used to uh, here we are. first Ooh. of all can you see there's some strange some of the bubbles on the surface are behaving very differently from the others
2: yeah they look kind of silvery and they're sort of skittering about they're
4: much silvery and they're skittering about and sometimes Ooh.
2: there was a, a bubble went downwards oh yeah there's one. Oh, there we She's go a yeah away. a couple of bubbles the, there's weird that is weird what's going on there bubbles don't go down <laughs>
4: What we're actually getting here is the inverse of a bubble. A normal bubble's got air in the middle then a thin layer of um, water which is stabilised by detergents around the outside and then then air around the outside of that. Um, The ones which you can see on the surface are basically little droplets of water which are The surface at the bottom is being stabilised by the washing up liquid. Um, You drop a droplet on the top of it, you get a little thin layer of air underneath and it skitters around the surface. It behaves very differently because it's much heavier, it's got a lot more momentum, it tends to fly out very quickly instead of just kind of sitting around in a boring way like a normal bubble. But sometimes they manage to, I think it tends to be when they hit a very rough piece of water which is dropping as the droplet hits it, they can actually trap this layer of air around them and actually get underwater. So you get a layer of water, a bubble with water in the middle, and a layer of air, um, and then a layer of water outside it. Again, like a normal bubble, it's stabilized by the detergent.
2: But this is very interesting. But are there real-life situations where we see this and and where it's useful?
4: Um, It's actually very, very similar to a living cell. Um, all cells in your body are little bags of water. Salty water. (laughs) Salty water, yeah. I had to add the salt in order to make it denser than water because otherwise the air would make it float up and it wouldn't be as easy to see. Um, Yeah, all um, cells are little bags of water. And Actually, the bags are sealed in with a membrane, which is created by two essentially um, two layers of detergent molecules pointing into each other. It hasn't actually got a layer of air in between, but virtually the same structure stabilised by the detergent or surfactants little bags
2: absolutely fascinating so if you try that at home and you can see these little silver bubbles floating downwards or skittering around on the surface then do let us know
4: and yes. some on our the website in the kitchen science section of the website I've got some lovely slow motion videos of these being formed and dropping down they look the
2: fantastic yeah so uh, do let us know you can email us at chris at the com if you have any joy
0: and those pictures are at nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science I think that's right isn't it Dave yep
2: Kat? Yes. No idea what we're doing now. Ah, here we are. We've got a question for you, Chris. Uh, This is from Hazel, who's just emailed in, and she wants to know why, when she just choked on a piece of food, her eyes began to water. I hope you're all right, Hazel.
0: Uh, Yeah, the reason for that is because you have various reflexes that are designed to protect your airway, and there's a nerve supply, the internal laryngeal nerve, which is sensitive to everything touching... Uh, It's sort of your epiglottis inwards and down down into your um, airway because obviously you need to defend your airway very carefully because if anything goes in there, it could threaten your ability to breathe. So there's this very profound choking reflex and that triggers a cough but it also triggers various secretions to happen, the idea being that it will lubricate uh, your mouth and everything to help anything that's stuck get free. But at the same time, the same secretory motor system also makes you... Eyes water a little bit So it makes some tears come to your eyes And also what you're doing When you're coughing and choking You're blowing air up your tear duct So normally the tears that you've got in your eyes Drain down a little punctum Which is a little sort of plug hole In your lower eyelid towards the middle And they go down into the nasal duct And tip into your nose Well if you raise the pressure in your nose By coughing, sneezing, blowing your nose the pressure is reversed and it blows the tears back up your tear duct and into your eye. So there's two things going on. One, you increase the secretions, and two, I think you you probably jettison some tears back up into your eyes.
2: Nice. We've got a really quick question for you, Dave, uh, from Alan Scarhill. How high would a pile containing a trillion dollar bills be? This is topical for the uh, recession.
4: Uh, As individual dollar bills, we were looking it up, they're about a tenth of a millimetre high, um, so that would come out at about 100,000 kilometres high or about a third of the way to the moon.
0: So that's the US fiscal rescue package, third of the way to the <laughs> Going moon. Going to the moon. Sounds like an astronomical amount of money. Thank you very much. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, we'll be checking out the Cambridge Science Festival, and Ben Goldacre will also be a guest when we'll be debunking bad science. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Alan Fitzsimmons and Dan Meyer, and to our production team, Ben Valsler, Tom Simpkins, Dinah O'Carroll and Mira Senthalingam. Do try and join us next week, and if you have any questions in the meantime, the email address chris thenakedscientist.com
1: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.